Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you to this evening? I'm doing good, John. How are you doing this evening? Uh, I have a glass of my very own homebrew beer, uh, and so I'm doing fantastic. Uh, I see you have yourself a nice wine there. Uh, did you happen to make it yourself? I did not. I do have some homemade wine down in the basement, but uh, <clears throat> it is powerful stuff. <laughs> I want to stay at least quasi-coherent for our episode tonight. <laughs> so just drinking some cheap store-bought wine. My favorite part about that is that I was just doing a bit. I had no idea you have your own homemade wine. <laughs> so that's... Uh, I married Italians. We got homemade everything in this house, man. Oh, man. I need to I need to check to see if my wife is somehow secret Italian. <laughs> secret Italian. Uh, that's a, that, that should be a thing if it's not already. The secret Italians. Well, there's secret Canadian, which I think started out as a joke on like the movie dodgeball and i think there's like a label that calls itself secretly canadian or something so i know that exists somewhere so we'll just do our own spinoff called secret italians <laughs> sounds good uh but the movies we're talking about today uh only in one word could i describe it as being anywhere connected to italians uh and or canadians not even really matter. or canadians for that matter because uh, today we're talking about anime um this is sort of a sequel to our uh, animated films episode in the sense that, like, this is not a genre. This is sort of a production method. Uh, and certainly the movies we're going to talk about today have very, uh, uh, very different feelings and uh, stuff to them. Uh, Chris, do you uh, do you want to give us your quick uh, anime rundown? I think this was your pick, right? Yeah, this was my pick. But it, it, let's 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 kind of talk about why it was my pick as well. So we, I wanted us to kind of get back on the track of kind of what the original intent of Cinema Duel was was, which was for each of us to introduce a film to the other that we weren't already familiar with. The last couple of episodes, we've kind of been straying from that path a little bit, and. Even though this isn't a true cinema duel, uh, because I picked both films, only because one I knew you were familiar with, I had never seen but wanted to, and one I was really familiar with, I wanted to in introduce to you. It, it, it kind of starts us um, on a ship back toward that original intent, so I was really excited for it. And anime is not something I have a lot of experience in. So um, I was really looking forward to diving in a little bit deeper uh, into some of the films just to become acquainted with it and then just to kind of talk about the two films we have here. And one of the things that I'm really glad you mentioned and one of the reasons why I wanted to pick this, we, we did an animated episode before. We're going to do a few more. I know we're going to do um, a Miyazaki episode at some point. So be forewarned, this anime episode, um, one of our rules was it cannot be a Miyazaki film, although one of the films is a Studio Ghibli or Studio Ghibli, however you pronounce it, film. Um, but you, you talked about being like a, a style as opposed to a genre. Um, and sometimes that gets a little bit lost in, in translation, when you talk about anime, because I, I know for myself specifically, one of the first things I think of when I think of anime is I think more of like the really long anime serials. And I think about things like giant robots, <laughs> like Gundam and, and, uh, um, Neon, Dragon Ball Z. yeah, Dragon Ball Z and Neon, uh, Neon, uh, Genesis of Evangelion, which I think both of us have seen at this point. Uh, so I think about stuff like that. I think about Akira, which is probably the most well-known anime, at least in Western kind of uh, audiences. Um, 
Ghost in the Shell. So always this kind of heady sci-fi kind of fantasy stuff. Um, but there's so much more out there than that. And one of the things I'm really happy about is the two films that we're going to talk about are the furthest things away from that style of anime or that that kind of pocket of anime it it's it's so much more than what you think of when you go onto Netflix and you see a hundred thousand kind of manga adaptations and uh, serializations of things like um like uh Death Note and Dragon Ball Z and and the other aforementioned things so I don't have a lot of experience I've seen kind of some of the real big things I've seen Akira, I've seen Ghost in the Shell, we actually rewatched them both in anticipation for this. Um, but I'm really kind of shocked by the variety of storytelling and the mechanics that can come into play. So I'm kind of a newbie stepping into these waters a little bit. And especially after these films and the other films that I watched, looking forward to diving in more to some of it. What about you? Is this something that you ever followed? Or I, I know you're a huge Miyazaki fan. So did you ever branch out further than that? Or was your is your anime experience kind of a little bit more focus or centralized actually mine's fairly similar to yours uh in the sense that uh like i didn't even like i knew that dragon ball z was on tv but like i didn't watch it as a kid one of the things i'm really grateful for in uh with everything coming to streaming or think more things coming to streaming is that the people in my life i knew who were into anime would talk about like having to spend exorbitant amounts of money for uh importing dvds or just straight up like bootlegging or torrenting things in order to see anything and that's some like a lot of that just felt like honestly more work than I wanted to put into it. Um, and so it's really when things started to become more accessible, like, uh, like later as an adult, like when Disney started or when Disney started doing like the Blu-ray releases of the Miyazaki films, like that's, um, that's actually like when I started doing it. So, and I, and I, and like you, I've been picking at some of the, the bigger names, your Kira's ghost in the shells. Although actually a lot of the anime that I've tended to watch since then has been sort of actually has tended towards the series, like your cowboy bebops or yeah. your neon Johnson's Evangelion. Some episodes we come at it where there's someone who knows something fairly well and they have some grounding in it or history with it. Uh, you know, in our, in our Bergman episode or Paul and Pressburger or the star Trek episode, like, uh, the, you know, there's someone who usually has like, let me, let me, you know, sit you down for three hours and talk to you about this energy. Uh, in this case, I think we're both just sort of like trying to feel our way through. Um, especially since, uh, the, the, the TV anime I've seen outnumbers the movie anime I've seen by a fair bit, it seems at least at this point. So, um, I'm excited to like, especially with some of the, the names of like direct, if we're, trying to track through lines of interesting people like the directors of these movies i'd be interested to like follow up more um especially since there's some that i wasn't able to see in time for uh in time for this episode but uh why don't we get started with our first film for the night yeah so uh i'll be kicking it off and the film that i wanted to introduce is Tokyo Godfathers, the 2003 Japanese kind of little bit of everything by Satoshi Kon. That was the, um, uh, that was the, this is somehow, this is the only part of this that's actually Italian is because it has Godfather yeah. in it. <laughs> So 
Tokyo Godfathers. Um, it, it's funny because I picked a film that if you know me at all through these episodes or through the other writing I did and you know where kind of my passions in film lie, uh, they're in much more classic films. And uh, this is kind of a very, very loose adaptation of um, Three Godfathers, um, which was a novel, but also a John Wayne film. So <laughs> uh, if you can in picture, if you've seen Tokyo Godfather, one of the characters being played by John Wayne, congratulations, you can go seek that movie out. Uh, I will say, even as a lover of classic films and as an avowed lover of old John Wayne films, Tokyo Godfathers is a much, much better film than the original Three Godfathers. So this is the third film by Satoshi Kon. And uh, if I can direct you to any filmmakers in anime whose name is not Miyazaki, it would be Satoshi Kon. He only made four films in his life. He tragically died very early uh, after, shortly after completing his fourth film, Paprika. Um, Tokyo Godfathers is his third film, and it's essentially a tragic comic story of coincidences uh, and madcap kind of action about three homeless people in Japan who on uh, Christmas night are digging through the garbage and find an abandoned baby and what happens with that baby. Um, and over the course of kind of one or two nights, as they try to reunite even if they don't, re they, originally they want to reunite the baby with the mother, then they want to take the, the baby to the police. Then they just want to question the mother to understand why they would abandon this baby. So over the course of these two nights, you you learn the story of these three, um, these three homeless people. There is Jin, who is this kind of gruff, older um, alcoholic who... Um, is running away from a past that he is ashamed of. There is Miyuki, who is a very young girl of indeterminate age. I, I kind of have her as like an early teen, kind of preteen, who um, after having a vicious fight with her father, who is a police officer, runs away from home. And then you have Hannah, who is... It, it's kind of weirdly placed in the film. She is a homosexual. She may also potentially be a post-op transvestite. Uh, she, she, there's a mention of having no testicles. Um, but she, she has, she, she is running away from a lot of tragedy in her life as well. And the, the way that the story works is just basically as they go on this trip with this young baby that they named Kyoko, um, their paths their, 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 their pasts kind of come to light. Um, they're the things that they are running away from confront them and they overcome them. And it is ultimately a really, really strong and uplifting film that has a lot to say about Japanese society. It has a lot to say about, um, how homeless people are perceived. It has a lot to say about what our perceptions are of people like that. It has a lot to say about, Stress. It has a lot to say about kind of some of the decisions we make and how the past is not something that you can run away from. It does all of this in such a startlingly, startlingly, I'll say it that way, um, cinematic kind of perspective. Um, this is, this is not the art of a Studio Ghibli or a typical ant. ant anime film. One of the things that really struck me right away is just the way that the characters are drawn, the way that they're animated, the individual walk and run style of each of these, these characters. 
It's extremely cinematic, um, and that's indicative of all of um, Satoshi Kon's films, right from his first one, Perfect Blue, up to his last one, Paprika. Um, this is a person who has studied filmmaking, who has studied cinematography, who has studied camera moves, and he incorporates all of that into his movies. Um, he is a wonderful master of opening credits. If you've seen his other films, you'll see the way that he plays with credits in Tokyo Godfather. Um, the credits for the film are plastered across street signs and delivery trucks as, as the three of them, um, are kind of walking along the streets early Christmas evening. And, uh, it's, it's somewhat unrealistic. The coincidences are insane. Um, so it's a little bit heightened. It's a little bit larger than life, but it, it just kind of takes the story of these three people and lets you get to know them in a way that a lot of films, uh, at least in the anime kind of style, don't. Um, so, John, just to kind of kick things off, and we'll talk about details and stuff later, I just wanted to kind of get your sense of who someone like me, whose exposure to anime is somewhat limited and maybe um, very heavily leaning toward the Studio Ghibli or Ghibli style and the Miyazaki style and the way those characters are, are drawn. How did the kind of change in animation style for Tokyo Godfather strike you? And then ultimately, what did you think about the unreality of a story that is at its heart a very realistic story? I watched Perfect Blue, and I think you did yeah. uh, as well. In uh, just sort of like to lay some groundwork for uh, for this episode, and between that movie and this, like the like this, like having someone who's basically using this sort of drawing style to sort of do their own version of shot techniques or like cinematic language that we understand. Uh, like it's a it, it it kind of feels similar in the way to like how Jean-Pierre Melville sort of interpreted uh, the Hollywood uh, crime movies of that he liked and then just put his own sort of like distinct flavor on it. This feels uh, like a similar sort of like filtration or translation in that sense. Um, and it's really cool. Like it's just because you're, you're, I don't know. There's, I don't have anything like, super deep on that particular um on, on the cinematic language it's just like it's um it, it's it's a fun and new way to sort of represent something that we're familiar with which you know anytime you can do that is really cool um as to the unreality of it the first thing i thought of was the movie opens with uh the with a you know on christmas eve and it's a nativity scene and uh it transit goes from you know talking about the birth of jesus and you know all of the christmas story traditions they run to and then the movie is about three homeless people who find uh an abandoned baby a newborn abandoned newborn baby it almost feels like there's like i almost half expected this to be some kind of weird parallel to like we're we're just going to do our own version of the Jesus birth story, <laughs> uh, which is not that. But I, I thought that was a nice like. If you're talking about coincidences, I really liked how they set up the movie by doing. Yeah, this is the nativity scene. Cut to we find a baby in a in a dumpster. Yeah, and it ends too on it ends too on like a weird miracle. I mean, this is a movie that again is very realistic in what it's doing, but it portrays that very realistic story in some very unrealistic ways. I mean, if you take out even the crazy coincidences, right? There's the ending where um, 
without getting into too much spoiler territory, um, the baby is supposedly reunited with the mother. You find out that the mother is not actually the mother. The mother is a crazy person who lost a baby and stole that baby from a hospital and is going to kill herself with the baby. Uh, and they're at the top of a building and the entire city is watching, um, including extremely coincidentally, the young lady's former husband who is in a building across the street screaming to her. Um, there is dangling off of ledges. There are people grabbing feet of people who were dangling off of ledges. And then they fall. Uh, Hannah, who I'll, I'm going to just make no bones about it, is my favorite character in the movie, oh, yeah. um, has has the baby and falls. And just through the crazy coincidence of how the wind happens to be blowing and what's there, she grabs onto a banner. There's a huge gust of wind that blows it like a parachute and gently drops her and the baby to the ground. I mean, it is as big of a miracle ending as you could hope for. And the fact that it starts with the miracle of, you know, the um, the nativity set and the manger. I, I think there's a really interesting kind of full circle there. Just kind of response to what you're saying about the kind of the, the cinematic style. It, it, it's there's not a lot to say about it, but the thing that I find is really interesting is that you typically use animation, right? To I, I think where the real strength of animation lays, whether it's CGI or or 2D like this, is in the presenting of the impossible. And you can do things, and our next film certainly does some incredible things with that, that you could not do in live action. Um, and the fact that Khan, Sotashi Khan is working in 2D and animation and is choosing to use like things like um, dolly shots and pans and dissolves. Um, a lot of like the first filmmaker that I thought of watching him was Scorsese. There's a great moment where they are, uh, the baby is lost again. Um, the young homeless person, Miyuki, has it. And <laughs> without getting into details, she is in the home of a wife of a Spanish person who was dressed as a woman who shot a gangster, kidnapped her, brought her to his wife, who is also nursing a young baby, so was able to feed the young abandoned baby. They get into a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, so they're just kind of chilling in their apartment. Hannah is running, trying to find them, and there's a moment where she's nearby the building, and she's out of breath, and she coughs, and she's very sick, you find out in this scene. She's coughing, and when she coughs, it just cuts to the side of the building, and you see blood kind of dripping down one of the gutters because she coughed up blood. When it hits the ground, it immediately transitions to a flashback, not a Hannah flashback, but a Miyuki flashback. And you see kind of what caused her to run away from home and become homeless. And just that transition, that the, the way that that shot and the way that it's focused and the way that it moves into another shot, I'm like, that's... That's like a Scorsese thing. That's a quick, like, we're going to do all these things to tie these pieces together, to launch into another scene, to give you some necessary backstory before we jump back into the plot. There are ways that you can do that in animation that are probably a little bit more conducive to the animation style. The fact that Khan does this in the story and does a ton of stuff like that in the story is so refreshing because it's doing something in anime that you wouldn't normally think to do, which is to use these very kind of realistic live action techniques to kind of push the story forward. And and for that, I it, it's just, it, it, it it's a delight. Did this movie delight you at all, John? Like it delighted me because I feel like I could talk about it forever, but what was your kind of just feeling of watching the film? 
I mean, I, I, I liked it. It, 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 it's, it sort of holds this interesting tension of the, the, the unreality, like you said, the sort of the coincidences, the miraculous, almost ethereal nature of how the story works together. Um, yes. In one, in one sense, and yet it's very much grounded in a version of like all of the people's backstories are like very grounded, very human, um, uh, tragically so. Um, and the and like uh, when I was looking through the Wikipedia uh, page for this, it was talking about how this sort of like follows, I guess, a trend in anime towards like birth families as being negative things and uh, like chosen families as and sort of emphasizing like coming together with uh, people that you put in your life as opposed to people who are just shoved into your life. Yeah. Um, and I. And so it's hard to know if this is just sort of what's in the air here or if specifically it's because one of the uh, people who worked on this uh, movie was also someone who went on to work for Cowboy Bebop. But like to me, the dynamic between the three main characters feels very similar to Cowboy Bebop. People who are perhaps down on their luck and who haven't necessarily... uh, who've been sort of cast out of their respective situations, uh, but end up forming this sort of hodgepodge, uh, gang to support each other and take care of each other, uh, through, you know, their adventures. And obviously this is a story about homeless people in, uh, in Tokyo versus, you know, the space adventures of cowboy bebop, but like the, the way that people are seemingly broken coming together feels very, the, that that kind of chosen family thing feels very resonant here in the same way that it did when I watched Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, I I I I think the heart of this film is about the family you make as opposed to the family you have, right? And that is a huge piece of Cowboy Bebop, um, which is probably a, one of the biggest things that I had seen kind of through to completion before this as well. It's one of the things I'm most familiar with. Um, but that sense of the family you make versus the family you have, that's also going to play a large part in the f- the film we'll, we'll talk about next. But talking about the Wikipedia piece, um, I think uh, that they have a piece in here um, from George Pelurane, maybe that's his name. Uh, but he sums up what the movie is, you know, pretty succinctly. It's a film that shows the small yet significant ties that each of us have with supposed strangers and tells uh, well the story of family, miracles, love, and forgiveness, which is really what this film is about. And the thing that I love about it the most is, is that, that, that the fact that as much as this movie hinges on plot contrivances and coincidences to push it forward, really what this movie does is it gets you to know three people in a way that I don't normally get to know when I'm watching anime. This movie very much is just about, look, we're going to tell this story and it's going to start here and it's going to end here and it's going to have a happy ending and it's going to comment on a bunch of things. But the thing that I want you to take away from this movie is the understanding of three people's lives. And I think this movie does that wonderfully. Um, And again, just to talk about the performances, the way that this movie treats Hannah and it treats the the circle of comfort and the circle of acceptance that she has, not only between um, Jim and Miyuki, but there's a wonderful moment where they have no place to turn. They're hungry. They have nothing. So Hannah has to go to the one place she swore she'd never go back to. And that is the drag club that she used to be the star of. And that whole sequence is just nothing but love and acceptance and just 
this incredible portrayal of these people and you it, it it pushes the plot along because there are some crazy coincidences of, oh, I know this person and I know this address and I heard about this. But it also just allows you to get a closer glimpse of Hannah and what her past was and why she kind of is where she is now. And um, I, I, I think this movie is a wonder for really getting you to know the people in the story. I, I, I think it really, the success of this movie comes down to those, those three characters and just how fully uh, developed they are on their own and in relation to each other um, to the point that when uh, like later in the movie, when I think it's Hannah's yelling at Jin and just sort of like, going off on him and sort of like the when you know like the worst things about each other like when you know each other so well that you can like you know exactly what to say in order to like really get under their skin like that really hurts um because you uh because you know that these you know you know the relationship you know these characters individually you know how well they are together and that just seeing that like to seeing that injury and that that hurt from when she starts yelling at him and and telling about you know all the terrible things he's done and the terrible person he is it's it's like yeah. it's 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 rough stuff and it's you know what the, the, that that moment in, in particular is so great because that happens and it's brutal because it it, it happens on the cusp of Jin reconciling with his past. And, you know, right when he's having that moment of reconciliation, that moment of not running from his past and having this conversation, Hannah lashes out at him in the most brutal fashion. It's probably the most brutal moment in the film. And then she walks away and she explains why. And you see that even though they say it a number of times, how much she loves him and and the browbeating that she gives him is because she sees in him this kind of this ability to be better. And it just, again, it just, it's all these small little pieces put together. Excuse me. Something is going down my throat wrong. It's all these little pieces put together so beautifully to, to create a complete picture of a person, which forget animation. A lot of films don't take the time to do. You you know people through the broad strokes. You know people through the objective that they're trying to make. This movie doesn't care about any of that. I mean, it has an objective, but the objective is entirely incidental to you getting to know, in my mind, these three people. And uh, for that... Uh, if we want to talk about it more, we can, but, but for that reason alone, it, it has, since I saw it years ago, and I probably didn't see it too long after it came out, uh, when it was available in America, um, for that reason alone, it's, it's one of my favorite, um, ap- animated features, whether it's anime or, or another type. Yeah. And, and I think that like the, um, and that, that moment with, uh, with Hannah and Jen, like you, you, it's it's if it's not it's not only just like painful but like it's not it doesn't feel like hannah's taking a a a villain turn either because you are so so acquainted with with her that like the uh you're you're so you you know both those characters so well you're so invested with them that you're just like okay it, it changes how you see that conversation where it's not just someone dipping out with both middle fingers and you know going full heel turn you're just like yeah. no you're you're still with them and then that's that's actually why it hurts is because you can't just say oh fuck this person yep. or whatever yeah no you nailed it yeah absolutely yeah that uh it's uh it, it 
it, it's just kind of wild. I, I could see this like in the one hand, I could see this being like a like a like I mean because it is set at Christmas and it has sort of that like um, magical air to some parts of it that like I could actually see this being a movie you would watch at Christmas but like totally it's but on the other hand uh it would be like instantly one of the more depressing Christmas movies to watch (laughs) like uh, you know that's the thing I don't find this movie depressing I I really don't I mean the situation is depressing but again maybe it it, it, it's just for me it, it's filmed so vibrantly there are some very serious moments there's a there's a um there's a sequence with where a bunch of young kids beat an old man to death in the movie. Now, one would argue that's not the most lighthearted fare for a Christmas film. But my overall impression of the movie is it, it is one of hope. It's one of love and it's one of it's one of cheer. I, I, I think if I have a complaint about the movie, the end, like after the miracle thing happens, there's like a little coda that's a, more of a joke than anything else to an earlier thing that happens in the film. But um, it's l- like the, the coincidence and cheer is laid on a little too thick. It's, you know, Hey, please be my godfathers. Oh, and by the way, you have the winning ticket for like a billion yen on the lottery, you know, and you don't realize it. Um, it, it gets a little bit too much, but it, the whole journey is one of it's, it's, it's brisk. It's fast paced. Um, it is constantly showing you these things to make you fall in love with the characters. So for that reason, I, I don't find it as depressing, um, as maybe, as maybe you do, or as maybe other people might. Um, I, I would potentially watch this every ho- holiday season and I'd be happy to do so. <laughs> I, I'd say that like, if it uh, like, I'd say that if it, if it, sort of treads a bit more raw than you would expect out of a uh, out of a christmas movie it certainly like it, it certainly earns it um even if i think you mentioned that like the ending is perhaps just a little bit too tidy um especially given how much of it is about like you know the rejection from family and trying to find new meaning and new relationships with new people how much of the ending revolves around everyone just going back to their original families. <laughs> it it does sort of like, it does sort of like damper that a little bit, but it's still, no, I, I, I agree. Like this is, this, this was a lot of fun. I, I really liked, uh, uh, I really liked watching this one and it was, I was grateful that you picked I'm it. I'm so glad. You know what movie I'm never going to watch on Christmas, John? Our next film. Right. So as Chris so wonderfully set me up uh, for this uh, intro, uh, our second film of the episode is going to be 1988's Grave of the Fireflies, directed by Asao Takahata of Studio Ghibli fame. See, this is technically a this is technically not a Miyazaki movie, uh, so therefore it doesn't fall into our it doesn't sort of cross the bounds of being a into our Miyazaki episode, um, but still allows us to talk about Ghibli. Um and yet I feel like this movie is basically one of the main outliers in the Ghibli catalog. Um, uh, though there's obviously like connective threads to, 
you know the rest of their work uh you know the uh the, the way that the characters are animated um some of the attempts to like find whimsy and wonder in hard situations are there this but this feel, movie feels like uh sort of pushed to an extremity that most people uh find incredibly <laughs> harrowing and emotionally destructive on a scale that potentially may even rival the nuclear bombings that are prim- horribly featured in this movie. Um, but I do know I say some because I know that uh, from what Chris has hinted at to me, uh, the uh, this may not be universally held belief. Um, this is a story uh, about uh, a brother and sister who when they lose their mom during a firebombing in World War II, um, try to uh, sort of survive and make their way through, uh, you know, just trying to survive in the aftermath of that bombing. And the the movie starts with um, him having, uh, with the older brother having died and uh, going to join his sister who has already passed. Like that's the opening of the movie. And so, you know, from the beginning, this is not going to end well. Um, and then the movie sort of the rest of the movie sort of like jur- details their journey that leads them up until that point. Um, Chris, this was, I've seen this movie before and uh, I had sort of th- decided at the first time I had seen it that like, this is kind of a one and done for me. I don't need to. And I think a lot of people do that as well, but <laughs> you, uh, sorry for making you watch it twice. <laughs> I, I would I would actually put like but the, I had a similar reaction I think to something like Passion of the Christ when I watched it the first time which is like okay I recognize the craft here I recognize just how effective it is at doing the thing that it wants to do but also like I don't need to experience that again um, but and, and I think a lot of people resonate with that feeling but I want to I want to put you in sort of the the driver's seat because this was your first time watching it so what uh what was your, I guess, expectations versus the actual experience of doing it? Yeah. So I, I think this is a case of, let me get this right off the bat. It, it, it's an incredible movie and I really like it a lot. That being said, after having told, you know, everyone's got their cinema blind spots, right? You know, I've never seen this movie. I've, I've never seen that, that movie. For me, I've never seen Grave of the Fireflies. And that's despite the fact that for at least 12 years, I've owned it on DVD. I bought the DVD once years ago, threw it in my folder. I'm like, I'm going to get to this because everyone says it's one of the best anime movies ever. And I've never watched it. So... The problem was, even when we were talking about, okay, let's do this for our episodes, people are like, get ready. This is the most gut-wrenching, watch it once and never watch again film you're ever going to see. And at 48 years old, having seen movies for, you know, 45 of those 48 years that I remember, um, it's a heavy movie. Um, It's a tough movie. It's a beautiful movie. Um, but it didn't give me the emotional kind of crunch that I think people were expecting me to have. And I think part of that is just having seen so many films and being kind of hit by such galvanizing films in my past. Um, that being said, you know, there are things about Grave of the Fireflies that uh, are beautiful and impressionistic. I, I, I think to your point, it does draw a line with some of the Studio Ghibli stuff just in terms of um, trying to find beauty in these painful moments. And it's beautiful and it's, and it's hard and it's striking. I think 
the best part of this movie is the beginning. The beginning is horrible and beautiful and just crushingly emotional where it opens with, you know, uh, it's whatever date it is, 1945. This is the day that I died. And you see Satai, the young boy, die. Um, and he is just, he's impoverished. He's malnourished. He dies in like this. It almost looks like a train station. And the, the, the people who are in charge are kind of cleaning up and, and, and walking it at night. They see him. This is another guy who's dead. They, they take a little tin from him and they say, what is this? I don't know. Throw it out. And they throw it in the weeds and it cracks open and you see charred bones come out of it. And out of the charred bones, and this is what Studio Ghibli does almost better than anybody else, emerges the ghost of Setsuko, the young girl, the young, the younger sister. Um, and she emerges in a burst of fireflies. And she walks and she finds Satai. I think they get on a train and they go off and then their story is told from the beginning. Um my problem with Grave of the Fireflies, as beautiful as a movie it is, nothing that comes after that beginning can equal that beginning. It might be one of the best beginnings I've ever seen in a movie, ever. It's just heartbreaking and gorgeous and emotional, and it tells you so much about what it must have been like for Japan at the end of World War II. And we've seen a lot of movies. You and I both, John, have watched a lot of Japanese movies Um Pre-war movies, post-war movies to kind of talk about that. I don't know that any movie strikes to the heart of it like this movie does. But the rest of the movie for me doesn't hold that beginning. Even though it's beautiful and things happen and there's some gorgeous stuff that that goes on, it can't rise to the level of its opening. And for me, it it doesn't bring it down, but it doesn't have then the emotional wallop that I think people – talk about, even though I acknowledge fully that this is a wonderful movie and I am the better for having seen it. My first thought actually watching this the second time was that this actually reminds me a bit of Vagabond, uh, the Mm. Agnes Varda movie, which has a similar structure of showing someone passing away or the protagonist passing away at the very beginning and then sort of like uh, in sort of uh, covering the last few days of their or the last few days weeks months or whatever of their life uh, afterwards leave it to you to bring varda into the conversation sir <laughs> hey I, I got a brand to uphold here uh the other thing as it relates to the way the movie is structured is that because yeah the, the, i i think when people talk about just how harrowing this movie is it is related to that opening um and 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 because there is no context for why am i watching a young man die um narrate his own death and then be reunited with the ghost of his sister emerging from her tin can of uh ashes um like that's and and then transitioning that to immediately into them being firebombed and watching uh buildings on fire and charred corpses and uh like it's it's like certainly i that i would find that to be uh like i actually watched uh hiroshima monomore uh this week for the first time and there's parts in that movie where i'm just like this is an impressionistic story of love with intercut with like actual like 
people who actual footage of victims of Hiroshima. And I'm just like, fuck. Speaking of, of that, and we, we may have to hold that for another conversation. Another DVD I bought years ago, it's sitting there yet to be watched. I've got to get to that. That it actually, I thought about that watching this movie. That oh, I should probably watch you know some other pieces around that time period. Let me ask you this though, John, because you brought up the question, and this is the biggest question that I had about this movie. What is this movie about? What is the theme of this movie? What is this movie trying to do? I think that my reaction to the film uh, echoes, I think, what I understand a lot of uh, Western North American response to the movie seems to be, which is that this is about the horrors of war. And this is about um, like this, like some people going so far as to call it an anti-war film. I think Roger Ebert famously so. Uh, That's how he described it. Um, And I don't think that there's any, if from from my experience and if i can extrapolate that into a more broader cultural perspective watching that movie i don't know how you come away with anything other than oh man war is bad and war is terrible um and look at the destruction and the death that it causes um i was surprised to learn however that uh the director of the film Takahata um, and, and, and actually not just him. I think that this also goes back to the original author uh, of the short story. This movie is based on uh, Akiyuki Nosaka. Um, it, he wrote a short story in uh, 1967 that was semi-autobiographical that sort of kind of detailed similar experiences to what he went through during the war. And he lost a little sister to malnutrition and he felt very conflicted and terrible about it um to hear those people that the intention of the story might potentially be that this isn't so much a movie about uh the effects of war at large but on rather um what the responsibility is of young people uh in a such in a crisis uh in as in and people who can so so again one of the, the main like one of the main conflicts in the in the within the between the characters in the film is that after their mom passes they go to stay with their aunt who just straight up is one of the worst people i've seen in a movie in a long time i felt so repulsed by just how the aunt treated those kids um and i think that has to do a lot of with what i think the movie is about but basically the 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 brother and sister in, in response to this abuse and this sort of neglect and ill treatment decide that they'd be better off on their own to try and uh, try and strike a living out for themselves. And so they end up in this, this uh, they end up living in this shelter um, trying to basically scrape, scrape, steal, beg, borrow, whatever they can do to uh, get enough food to survive. And that's under those conditions that the sister gets sick Um and, and 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 in a way that the doctors say could be easily treated with food, but because they are in their current situation, they're not able to get it, and then she dies, and then the brother dies not long after. Like the plot of the movie isn't actually that uh, complicated. It's more uh, it's more dealing in sort of the relationships and the emotions. Yeah, behind it, it. it's not really a plot driven film at all. To be fair, no. Um, and so the. Apparently, the intended meaning of the film is that uh, the mistake of the brother and sister is that they should never have left the aunt. That, like, they should have, like, times are tough. You suck it up. You go and 
you 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 know sacrifice your pride and you go back to the ant and you take care of her so that she can get the food she needs and and survive and like and and to me reading that just struck me with ungodly amounts of horror almost more than the movie itself the idea that the person who made this movie's their intention was to say like hey that person who treats you like shit you got to go back to them because otherwise you're going to die um and it's not to say that like the people who are in that situation are not trapped themselves within a system that is potentially bad that like you know uh they wouldn't be doing this necessarily if there wasn't a war going on so you could still like graft that into a larger message about war but he specifically takahata said he specifically didn't want this to be an anti-war message um uh, although that certainly is a thread throughout a lot of ghibli stuff especially miyazaki um but I read that and I was like, I'm sorry, but no, I'm going to just keep my own meaning on this film. This is what this film means okay. to me is that, uh, yeah. So that, that's kind of, that's kind of my big thing about this film is I'm, I very much take a different meaning of this film than the director's intention. How about you? I don't actually think this is an anti-war film. Um, but I, I have a different interpretation of the interview that I read with them, I think, maybe than you do. Um, so one of the things that I was reading through was the, the, that this is not an anti-war film. Rather, it's a film about the breakdown of society and the breakdown of kind of um, the structure of family and the structure of, of life. And it's using war as the trigger to show that. So, I mean, of course, it's it's anti-war in that regard, but you could have used any scenario to trigger the breakdown of family values. War is just the most easily one to do, and it was based off the book. So when I watched Grave of the Fireflies, what I was looking at was kind of how this triggering event, which just happened to be war, shows the breakdown of society, shows the breakdown of the family. And like you, um, the first thing that happens is Satai and um, Setsuko go to stay with the aunt who is related to the father who's away at war and, and we haven't heard from him. And she's despicable, unquestionably despicable. There's a, there's a horrible sequence in the film where Satai sets, uh, sells off his mother's silk kimonos. And with the rice that is bought from that, um, they feed the family. But you see a scene where they all sit down for dinner and she just gives them broth and she heaps the rice and the actual like carb loaded food to um, the husband and the daughter who are working. She says they're useless. They're not working. You know, what, what, what right do they have to this food? And it's terrible. Um, and part of what I kind of read, my interpretation of the interviews with them was not so that they were trying to show that they should have been stoic and stayed with her. Although in that time in the 1940s, that's what was to be expected. But when this movie came out in the 80s, that that kind of feeling for children and their respect toward the parents and the respect to just be, I have to deal with this and just get through it, that was starting to change. So what um, Takahata and Nosaka, well, what so Nosaka had written the the story before, and it um, they they talk about how he was very reluctant, and there was a lot of offers for live action, but when they did anime, that's when he kind of turned to it and and and, and kind of gave his blessing. But what Takahata was trying to do was more just kind of what if I were to take the feeling of children now in the eighties and give that sense of 
You know, I'm not going to be stoic. I'm going to go and forge my own way. Let me put that sense of what children are like now into this movie in the 40s and let that play out. So I, I, I don't see it personally as a advocation for, hey, you should have just sucked it up and stayed with the ant because that's what that's what will keep you two alive. It's much more what happens if I imbue the sensibility of kids today with the kids in this situation and let it play out to see what happens. And what happens is a terrible tragedy. They very much like Tokyo Godfathers, when we talk about like the family you make as opposed to the family you're, you're with, um, Satai and Setsuko stray from the family that they're made from. They create their own bond. They go to live in this kind of weird shelter in the side of a hill and slowly die of both of them die through malnutrition, but they die the way that I take it, not under the thumb of the oppression of what the ant was giving. It's still a tragedy, um, but it's a tragedy of their own making. And there's a weird kind of sad beauty to that. The rest of the film kind of talks through what Satai does to, you know, make ends meet. And there's, um, there's a horrible moment for me, at least with him, where I feel for him the entire time. There's a section where he's stealing from a farmer and he's stealing like a cane of sugar because Setsu is so sick that if he feels if he just give her some sugar, something sweet to suck on, she'll start to feel better. And the farmer catches him and beats him and takes him to the cop and the cop sees the brutality that was bestowed upon Satai and says, I could look at this as assault. So consider it handled, get the hell out of here. And the farmer leaves and the cop lets him go. The tables turn where he gets so desperate that he starts to use the fire bombings as excuses to go and steal from the other people to feed his sister. It's a weird moment where you kind of, I don't want to say you turn on him because he's doing what he needs to do to survive. But again, if I watch it from the auspice of kind of Takahata's view of, well, this is not what would have happened in that time frame. What would have happened was you need to survive. You suck it up and you bear the, the, the brutality of what it's like to live in that home because you and your sister need to live. It turns itself into a little bit of tragedy there in, in a way that I don't think it does if I just look at it as he has every right to move away and he's doing the right thing by not being with that family. Um, so, and, and, and that's where I think really the beauty of this film lies and how deftly it kind of puts you in a position to really start to think about, did he do the right thing? Did he not do the right thing? Look at the consequences and look at sees where it ends up, even though you know the consequences from the opening moments of the film, because that opening moment is so powerful. When you talk about how there's sort of the rest of the movie doesn't really match the uh, match the intensity of, or the the grandeur the the sort of spectacle of the of the beginning of it, um, <clears throat> to me that sort of allows the like I think by having it front loaded it sort of allows the 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 fate the the horror of it to sort of like seep through the rest of the movie even it allows it to actually be more. Um, do more of the traditional Ghibli magic that you would usually associate with it be without having to like hit it as often. Cause you hit it so hard at the beginning that like everyone's just sort of shell shocked going through uh, the rest of the movie being like, even so that they don't have to like hit the, hit the violence and the, and the, and the extremes that hard. Um, 
and and going back to the like what's what does this movie mean like i i hate to say it because no one wants to hear about quarantine pandemic times but like the way that uh, the way that the older brother takes care of his sister um almost has a sort of like life is beautiful quality to it of like we're going to i'm going to take responsibility for this person their wellness is my duty and my responsibility and i'm going to try and uh i'm going to try and shelter them from the absolute worst things like telling them that you know their mother is dead uh or you know some of the other things going on and that certainly is a thing going on in life is beautiful it's also a thing that if you're a parent uh of kids uh you are doing uh for at if you know at least the last year um if not longer and just trying to be like okay my kids started having nightmares during the first month of covid because of the conversations that were happening at the dinner table and we had to actually like stop because uh because they were just they were losing their they they thought the world was ending and the and so for 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 me i see i filter my last year of being a parent when i watch this movie now and and so i can't be like it's it's just like the most impossible thing to ask someone to try and do so that there's like minimize the amount of damage that someone would inflict or that someone to you know, for someone to suffer through. So, well, well, that's a fair point, and, and and it's something to point out. So, I I, I hope that wasn't coming across. Oh earlier. no, 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 definitely not. In no way does this movie lead you to like. It's not drawing you to make that decision. Should he have stayed or should he have gone? That's not what this film is trying to do at all. No. The other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, on a much more artistic level for the film. Um, one of the interesting things that I read was uh, one of the interesting things that I read was he tried very hard not to use blacks when he was doing the outlines. He actually uses browns for a lot of the outlines, which gives the film a much softer impression than it normally would. And one of the things that did really strike me about the film um, was watching the and seeing how soft some of the images are, especially when it's the two of them and how they're outlined in brown instead of black. It gives it this really kind of lived in earthy feel that um, knowing about it and then watching it, um, especially during the end um, when uh, you brought up uh, earlier, you you know, Setsuku dies of malnutrition and there's a beautiful sequence right at the end where her as a ghost is playing around the area where they lived and I was very cognizant of, of the fact that e- even though she's a ghost and you tend to use lighter, more transparent colors, just this artwork is, vi- e- e- even though the art style is the same as a lot of stu- Studio Ghibli, the way that this stuff plays with colors and impressions is very distinct from like the stuff that Miyazaki would do or the stuff that I would typically think of when I think about anime. And it's a real credit to the beauty of this film that is horrific as it is. It has these kind of almost ghostly, beautiful moments. And it, it's just interesting to see how he kind of changed his uh, art style to be able to accommodate that here. Did you notice that at all? Or was there anything about the art that, that kind of stuck out to you as opposed to other kind of Ghibli fare that you may have seen? I'm not quite as well versed on Takahata's films. I've seen, I think I've seen, th- well... 
I've seen all the Ghibli, so I've seen them all. Uh, I think I've just watched the Miyazaki ones more often. I think the Takahata is, from my experience, ha- is a bit more. I mean, this is not a diss on Miyazaki at all. I feel like Takahata is his films can be if you look at stuff like my neighbors the yamadas uh or grave of the fireflies or uh tale of princess kaguya he seems to be more willing to sort of stretch a little bit yeah stretch a bit on his on his style um i i've seen my neighbors the yamadas and i've seen the tales of princess um kaguya I think that's yeah. how you say her name. I think so. Uh, and yeah, very impressionistic and very much of a different style than typically what you would associate with Studio Ghibli. I think maybe Grave of the Fireflies, at least of the ones that I've seen, is his most Studio Ghibli-ish in terms of the drawing style. And and yet still, it's still like you mentioned with the with the with the Browns and the 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 distinctive uh, color palette choices. The uh, it still stands out as being like uh distinct uh from the from the house style so um yeah i think that uh that that's a, that's a very good point like it's um it it even like it even changes the way that you experience the the ghibli sense of wonder like because like by because like when when you reach the ending it doesn't replay the specific sequence of there like it doesn't replay the beginning scene Mm-mm. it picks up afterwards um and you get to like it cuts from the sort of like the sad moment of realizing that he's you know he's he's cremated his sister um and you sort of and then it's sort of like not long after that it kind of cuts to afterwards so you're all, like you're like it it emotionally ties it skips you ahead um so you don't have to like re-experience it you just know that okay now we are after the we jump ahead to, to afterwards and then they're reunited and then you get to see them you know and the and the fireflies and all that uh yeah stuff at the end it it's is a beautiful um, ending actually too yeah it's um and, and if it feels like the, the thing i this i don't know if this is interesting or not but it actually makes me wonder about like what would be the what would be the experience of watching the movie if they actually did it chronologically instead of ha- front loading the the ending up front like i have a feeling that everyone talks about this movie because they put that part at the beginning but what would be the impact of like watching it chronologically not knowing how that's going to end and then just having that hit you at the end like would that would that be something that people would you know say okay well this is like you know, you're a one chip, like the, the one chip challenge or t- eating Tide Pods. Like you were just, you were just going to watch the Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, or would it just be a movie that people were like, yeah, I, you know, fuck this movie because I hated the ending. Like you, you don't really get that with this movie. And I think that's probably because of how it's structured. Do you have any final thoughts on your experiences with Grave of the Fireflies? I mean, it sounds like we've, I mean, it, it feels like it, it, it hits there's not a lot I think we disagree on on this. I think it's just uh, no, totally. It's a it's a fantastic film. I mean, there, there's not much to say. I, I think if the thing that I would say is if you are truly a fan of anime, which to your point, anime as the style as a process of working, you owe it to yourself to see this. It's probably it it, it is rightly heralded as one of the greatest anime films of all time. Um, and the thing that I love about it so much, even though, again, it doesn't hit me like Tokyo Godfathers does because of 
what I grew up loving and, and, and what impacts me. Um, it's amazing to see an anime film deal with the topics and the themes and the pieces of history that this film does. Um, so I, I think it's important just in that regard to understand I've talked to a lot of people and I've read online about a lot of people who just dismiss anime out of hand because again, they come to it with the mindset that foolishly I did as well is it's a bunch of giant robots and weird tentacle creatures and schoolgirls. I mean, yeah, there's some good stuff in there, but that's what it is. Oh, and there's some Miyazaki stuff because I saw it on Disney one time. Um, it's much more than that. And it, it, it's much more in depth and it's, it's just as much an art form as any other thing. Uh, and if you don't believe me, then I would say even more than Tokyo Godfathers, watch Grave of the Fireflies. I mean, it is the stellar example of what you can do in that animation process with some heady topics. Um, and, 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 and for that, it's a brilliant example. And I don't want to, uh, and for people for whom the, the, the robots, uh, the Gundams and what have you, uh, uh, for people for whom that is like, not really dismissing that at all. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. Uh, if there, if there's sort of like any sort of cultural resistance to, to checking it out, I think it's mostly just because we don't have, like, it doesn't feel as like, in we're not as indoctrinated with this stuff as we are with sort of like more, uh, like, like it's did like, I mean, people are easily ready to talk about, you know, the regular Disney animated films. Like there's, there's, uh, or any number of, uh, North American based, uh, you know, the Canon. And we know like, like no one would try to judge the merits of the North American culture of filmmaking based on, Oh, I don't know the hangover part three. Like that's, uh, like you wouldn't try and extrapolate any sort of larger thoughts around, um, like, any of the trash that uh you know th- th- there's there's tons of trash everywhere you look uh um pop culture wise and so i think it's it's more just that we have a better sense of how to navigate through that with uh um with our own the stuff that comes out of our own continent versus stuff that comes out of other places so it's more just that it takes more work to be able to uh it takes more work to be able to try to sift through stuff that you're not as familiar with, but like it's, it's, it's totally there. It's totally worth the effort. Uh, and certainly at this point, the more accessible things become and the more things like, uh, Eva gets put on Netflix or the Miyazaki film, the Ghibli gets put on Netflix or, um, you know, any of that stuff. They're doing a live action cowboy bebop yes. uh, remake. Which I which can't emphasize God- enough. If we ever talk about like anime series as an episode, I mean, cowboy bebop is one of the, the most enjoyable things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah. Cowboy bebop fucking rules. It's my ringtone. Like, it's my ringtone like, as well. Has- How bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually um, I'll put this out now. Um, and John, let's put this in our notes for the episode. Um, one of the things that was a huge um, useful tool for us was Paste.com, um, Paste Magazine, had a great article about the 100 greatest anime films of all time. And they just focused on films, not series. And uh, every both, I mean, both films that we talked about here um, are listed on, on there as well as probably our recommendations. But if, if you want to see the breadth and scope of what the process has to offer, 
Um, that's a great starting point. So we'll link to that. But I, I, I really strongly encourage you if uh, you've always been kind of hands off when it came to anime because you had some preconceived notions. Both of these films are two great places to start. Very real world. They tackle very um personal and realistic subjects. Um, and then from there, you can start to branch out to other things. If you're only used to Miyazaki films, which are fantastic, which is why we're going to dedicate an episode to it in its own right. Um, these are two things off of that path that will get you on to other branches of the process to enjoy and uh, savor like we have. Speaking of uh, grounded uh, material uh, and uh, things that are sort of more down to earth, uh, why don't we move into our recommendations? Because my recommendation is 100% not that. Let's do it. All right. So for our recommendation segment where we talk about uh, movies, we also think you should watch uh, but won't talk about as much. Uh, my choice for this uh, for this episode is actually number 100 on the aforementioned uh, Pace Magazine list that we will be in the show notes. It is a movie called The Boy and the Beast uh, from director Mamoru Hosoda. Uh, and this is a movie... Uh, <laughs> This is a movie about dads and sons, and so I have a weak spot for it. Um, and it's uh, again, it's specifically about a you know a boy who loses touch with his family and finds a, a new father figure who is sort of a an angry uh, an, an angry guy who they train together. They don't really get along, but they sort of work together and eventually form a you know, a relationship there. And the movie does this fun thing where it brings the conclusion of their sort of their parenting journey together. Like it, they, it goes through the whole thing and it comes together and it's wonderful. And there's lots of fighting and various magical things happening. But the, the core of the movie is mostly just this father son dynamic. And when it comes and it comes to an end and you're like, yeah, that was good. I really like that. And then things get batshit crazy for another 30 minutes as more things happen. <laughs> and of the movies that I watched in the last couple of weeks uh, to sort of get ready for it, that was the one I, I kind of liked the most because uh, I'm a sucker for good dad stories. So uh, how about yourself? Love a good dad story, sir. Love a good dad story. Uh, my recommendation is going to be really easy because, um, again, most people, when they are drawn to anime, they think of Miyazaki and his exquisite, excellent films. I cannot wait to do our episode on that because I have a lot to say because I really do love his, his work. But I am going to pimp at this particular moment the remaining works of uh, Satoshi Kon, who I, I think is a stunning filmmaker, not just an anime director, but a stunning filmmaker. And again, he's only made four films, so it's really easy to take the entire breadth and scope of his filmography. Uh, and they are Perfect Blue from 1997, Millennium Actress from 2000, one, the aforementioned Tokyo Godfathers, which we already talked about, 2003, and then Paprika, which is his last film from 2006. Um, and is the one that is the most like sci fi driven. We talked a little bit off camera, um, as much camera as you can say, we're doing this via Zoom. Um, it's very much kind of like inception in a way because it deals about dreams and being able to process and bring dreams to life. And it's kind of a crime story and it, it's really kind of cool. But his other films, Tokyo Godfathers, Millennium Actress, and Perfect Blue, are all set in the real world. They're all incredibly realistic, but they all exhibit that kind of filmmaker's eye where 
it's live action, but in anime and it deals with perfect blue. We, we were talking earlier. It's kind of, if David Lynch took Mulholland Drive and did it in anime, <laughs> um, Millennium Actress is very different. It's a beautiful look at um, an actress and her life and and the period work that she does. And it, it's just a gorgeous story. Tokyo Godfathers, we talked about at length. So um, they're all readily available. You can re- rent them from your favorite streaming service. They're all fairly cheap. If you're looking to buy physical copies, Um but do yourself a favor and 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 check his his work out. He's a unique voice in anime, and one that should be long remembered. Um, so those are my recommendations, John. I watched Perfect Blue. That was fun. I do need to track down uh, Paprika and Millennium Actress at some point. Um, yeah. So I think that uh, yeah, this was a fun one. I appreciate getting to to chat uh, as always. Uh, we do have uh, a website, cinemaduel.com. Since we last recorded, I haven't put anything up there, uh, but I am working on a uh, another piece on the Agnes Varda series, which hopefully Chris, I'll be sending to you within a day or so uh, <laughs> for your uh, for you to edit uh, for me in your typical wonderful fashion. Um, but yeah, that's we're still plugging away. Uh, Still on uh, Spotify, if that's the thing you're interested in. But uh, anything you want to plug, Chris? No, I think we're pretty much everywhere now uh, in terms of streaming services. So wherever you like to listen to podcasts, you could probably find us. Um, I was talking to John earlier. I haven't been watching nearly as many movies as I should. Um, but eventually, once I do, uh, you'll see a couple more reviews from me up on the site. In terms of plugs, no. Not really. Um, I just would ask, I hope you guys are all safe. We're recording this on the day that, uh, at least in America, um, the Senate has, for whatever reason, decided to acquit our former president uh, of all charges on his second impeachment. So I won't lie, I'm a little bit bitter about that, but I'm trying to drown my sorrows with uh, really cheap wine and some good movies. So however you need to survive, I hope you guys do it in style and I hope you guys stay safe. That's all I have. That is perfectly fair. And actually, that reminds me, there's one thing I actually do have uh, to plug and hopefully might lift your spirit as well. You need to plug something, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, This is how bad I am at it, which is that I I forget that I did it. Um, So in... uh, in the last few years, I have been working under a uh, for my own musical project called uh, Domesticquam. And uh, last year, in this uh, during the summer, I put out uh, a new EP called Wallowing in Misery. And uh, my good friends over at Philip K. Discs, uh, we had been planning on putting together a cassette release. Um, last year and that was delayed because of the pandemic but we've finally been able to put together a actual cassette copy um with uh with some additional material recorded uh i actually bought a button maker mostly for the purposes of making a bunch of buttons to include with the cassettes so if you were to pre-order a copy of the tape then you will actually come with a button that i made with my own bare hands uh so i hope that's something that's meaningful so we'll have links on where you can go to pre-order that ep uh tape if you like uh in the show notes um yeah it'd be really cool if you were to check it out and pick up pick up a copy but uh yeah that's uh that's my other plug for now uh thank you uh for reminding me about it chris and uh hope you all stay safe and uh, we'll catch you next time sounds good take care john talk to you next time Thank you.